Welcome once again to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, as is so often the case, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're coming to you from the Lagasse Institute for Flavor Science here on the beautiful Hoople campus. Today we're talking about new evidence for processing and cooking plants in the Middle Paleolithic period, so in the neighborhood of 30,000 to 70,000 years ago, including by Neanderthals. Soaking, pounding, and charring species like mustard, almonds, and bitter vetch detoxified these plants and made them into something humans and Neanderthals could eat. But pushing back the history of foraging and food preparation, and including otherwise inedible plants, raises a series of questions like, who did all this experimenting, and what happened when things went wrong? Did people reinvent this over and over, or did they share information like, hey, maybe try soaking and charring that before you eat it, you won't get so sick next time. Most fundamentally, the question is, does cooking make us human? We're not animals, you know. Uh, so before we start, it, it, it occurred to me while we were, you know, thinking about this episode that <clears throat> about 50% of our um, podcasts have to do with food. <laughs> <laughs> what would you expect from three old Jews? <laughs> so there's there's a lesson there for our listener i suppose not sure what it is okay the lightning round <clears throat> very apropos worst cooking experience oh no, come on oh my god oh my god worst cooking experience oh i don't know <laughs> there's so many <laughs> uh yeah. Professor Dussel is flummoxed. Alex, why don't you go first? Well, mine is pretty obvious. Um, it was many, many years ago. Somebody and I um, were cooking um, red kidney beans, <laughs> and we uh, and we undercooked them. <laughs> oh, you didn't detoxify. And. <laughs> We spent the next 24 hours in agonizing pain, clutching our <laughs> clutching our insides, having not sufficiently detoxified. Wow. I forget we were, what we were trying to make with this stuff, but it was it was very bad. That's like a perfect segue for today's. Yeah. Show. I know. I wanted to go last. Oh yeah. Uh -huh, you could have gone last. Uh -huh. All right. Well, we'll we'll just remember your experience. Um, <laughs> um, okay. I'll I'll go. Um, the one and only time I tried to bake gluten-free bread um, was not was not successful. And I think uh, that can speak to the various grains and other substances that grow that you can make breads out of. In what way wasn't it successful? I mean, um, it, well, I only could stomach one bite, so I can't really remember, but... <laughs> 
it was it had not risen and it well that's uh, also a good segue actually yeah it's you you got your trial and you've got your error (laughs) (laughs) and that's a big part of today's today's uh lesson Yeah. yeah um one thanksgiving a whole big huge family thanksgiving and we had a big turkey in the oven i'm not going to name any names but the one vegetarian in the group <laughs> quote mistakenly turned off the oven <laughs> <laughs> so the turkey sat there for a while without anyone noticing oh no and then it got late and the whole process had to start again and <laughs> and other people got were so hangry that <laughs> it it turned out to be a real a real mess oh gosh yeah <laughs> so wow there are profound lessons for today's uh for today's broadcast in each of our experiences really that's true um so what are we talking about? <laughs> We're talking about the vetch, the bitterest of the vetches. Right. The bitter vetch. <laughs> the you know, when, I, when I started in graduate school, I think my first year, Andrew Moore was, was uh, on the faculty as a visiting professor. So we basically did a grad seminar on Abu Herrera. And uh, it was... I had known about bitter vetch, you know, because I, you know, we had read taking courses on the Neolithic as an undergrad, et cetera. But, but I sat there the whole semester thinking that, like, what a great, you know, Doctor Seuss character, the bitter vetch. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I first heard the term in my first year graduate um, basic archaeology course when um, my advisor Doug Essie told us about bitter vetch in terms of agriculture, I suppose. And the two of us, maybe three of us in the seminar just kind of looked at each other and looked at him and we shrugged our shoulders and he said, yeah, bitter vetch. As if it was so obvious. <laughs> right. As if everybody knows what uh, Vicia Irvilia is, Ooh. but I suppose Doug did because he was, he knew everything. He yeah. knew everything. And he was from the farm. That's right. And, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> We really yeah. are at a disadvantage, those of us who, you know, are archaeologists, but have not been farmers. Yeah, we're, we're completely that. ignorant. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you know, yeah. I won't yeah. even elaborate on that, of course. <laughs> <laughs> this is getting off topic. I know. It's in, into right. a round of recrimination and self-loathing. <laughs> 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 Which is completely well, out of character. It is, as our listener is, knows. <laughs> we're it is, you know, we're coming up on Festivus. So <laughs> it's time to air grievances. And That's right. All that other kind of stuff. All right. Someone wants to go to the garage stuff? and get the pole. <laughs> all right. All right. So so <laughs> do, somebody do the setup. I'll I'll, I'll begin it and then when 20 minutes in um, the idea that um, people have been cooking vegetables and eating cooked vegetable matter since the Paleolithic. Um, and there's been a recent study from two very different places, one in a cave site in France um, and one a cave Greece. site in Greece. Iraq. Oh, I'm sorry. caves in Greece. Sorry. Okay. And... Um, and uh, the, um, the both of which show show evidence for um, for 
processing and cooking a vegetable matter. That's my setup. Right. In yeah. which the bitter vetch is a central, a central player because the bitter vetch, you have to soak it. You really should even boil it. You have to replace the water and it's this little shrubby kind of thing with it's a, it's a legume. That's that's, that's what we call them legumes. Or is it a pulse? Is it a pulse? I have two Wikipedia pages open, one for legume, one for pulse. (laughs) It's a wild pulse. It's a wild pulse. But there's also almonds, wild almonds, which contain cyanide. Yeah. So pistachios with tannin. Right. uh, A neurotoxin, wild pulses, and of course the wild mustard. Right. Which, which, you know, mustard greens are still are still a central part of lots of lots of modern diets. Right. And they're also bitter, apparently. Oh, have you not ever had mustard greens? No. Oh, man, they are bitter. There's a lot of bitterness there. They are bitter and they get, you know, they get cooked into oblivion, right? So when you, it's put on your plate, it's a kind of a, you know, a, a pulpy mass of slimy green stuff. <laughs> and then in the South, at least you, you know, throw on a little couple of dashes of vinegar just to really make, make that pucker ever so astringent. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Okay. Right. Hmm. But here they are in found in, in these Paleolithic caves. Uh, Frunkthi cave is dating to about 13,000 and change BP. Right. And Shanidar at about 42 to 35,000 BP. And the yeah, earlier it, phase at Shanidar with the Neanderthals from 75,000. Right. right. And in these clumpy masses, the boffins took it back to the lab. Boffins. Looked at, <laughs> where would we? We wouldn't have a show without the boffins. Apparently. <laughs> for the boffins. I'll tell you, these, these uh, scanning electron microscope images of these charred seeds. Yeah. I mean, they're beautiful. Well, you know why? Yeah. Because they spray like five angstroms worth of gold on the exterior to solidify it. I think you'd look good. You'd look good sprayed with gold. Gold (laughs) finger. He's the man. If you've got the Midas touch. Midas touch. (laughs) (laughs) Which reminds me, was it last winter that there was a huge snowstorm and the Midas, there was so much snow on the roof of the Midas, um, shop that it collapsed um i don't know that's just a midas related related gag that that, that's a friendly amendment that we'll accept (laughs) i just think that you can learn a lot by by looking that's mavis i knew that oh it was mavis not midas yeah Yeah. (laughs) mavis collapsed might need a little editing all right back to the middle paleolithic so there's a couple there's a there's a lot of things in here there are a lot of things. Yeah, there's a really a lot of things. And um, I think that the stuff from Shanidar is a little bit more stunning, interesting, outstanding than the stuff of Frankfurt because it dates earlier. And True. I think the big takeaway from Shanidar Cave is that both Neanderthals, 75,000 BP, and Homo sapiens, <clears throat> roughly 40,000 or what 38,000 BP, were both processing... Um, these astringent seeds in similar ways right right and and that this pushes this does a couple things one is it pushes fruit processing back 
not a thousand years, not 5,000 years, not 10,000 years. A million years, <laughs> metaphorically speaking. <laughs> but, but it pushes it back like 20,000 years. Yeah. Um, yeah actually yeah. more, uh, 20 to you know 40,000 years, uh, which means that uh, our, and it means that Neanderthals and Homo sapiens were, you know, processing plants in the same kind of way. Right. The, um, the Homo sapiens added in mustards and terebinths to their to their diet, but they were processing them the same way. But they were processing the same way. And, you know, this pushes back the whole history of, of you know, the emergence of, of uh, food processing mm -hmm. uh, much earlier. And it suggests that there's another myth to bust. And that's the myth of the paleo diet, right? <laughs> It's all very big and popular now, right? The paleo diet and everyone thinks you need to eat a lot of meat right. uh, as part of the paleo diet. But all of this suggests that they are using more resources, more plant vegetal resources in a wider array of cooking techniques and even to add flavor to uh, vegetarian dishes. Yeah. Uh, which is all to say that the paleo diet is really a lot eating a lot of um you know, uh, vegetables and, and seasoning with vegetables. Right. That's really a good point. Um, and one thing that I kept thinking about is, is exactly this myth of, of Neanderthals eating all this meat, because, you know, when you think about going way back, way, way back, um, I, apes have been eating vegetables more than they eat meat. So why should we be surprised that early humans ate vegetable material. I mean, that's. I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a percentage thing. I think that we've always known that we've been foragers, but now, uh, but that there was a. Certainly to judge by our behavior, foraging constantly. <laughs> <laughs> we retroject this. Well, but, that's a um, good point. Along with, you know, eating big mammals, but now right. I think the, the tide is turning and we're seeing not only were we foragers, but that the broad spectrum foraging, complex foraging, doesn't start in the epipaleolithic. I mean, when we were graduate students, we thought it started in the in the earliest part of the Neolithic, the aceramic Neolithic. Right. Then with the discovery of Ohalo, we pushed that back to the epipaleolithic. Well, now we can say that, you know, scheduled and complex foraging, food processing goes back to the middle paleolithic. And that really extends and undermines a lot of these myths about lots of things, not the least of which is the paleo diet. Yeah. I hadn't thought of it quite in terms of the paleo diet per se. I, I thought of it more in terms of <clears throat> Neanderthals um, restoring a besmirched, continuing to restore the right. besmirched reputation of these stocky, yet plucky, cold adapted humans or archaic humans or cousins. And I'm sure we all have cousins who are, who like the cold and who are short and stocky, but who are really um, just as smart as, right. as we are. And um, I mean, so easy a caveman can do it is so insulting. Cave person. <laughs> like, well, there's that too. Right. Right. So, uh. the, so the, the, the human, the human factor let's call it um has to be has to be extended way 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 far back but to me there's also there are a couple of i don't know procedural questions <laughs> okay. so how did 
How did these CIS? <laughs> That's right. food. Well, I like to think of our, of this show as kind of a police procedural. Um, you know, okay. with a continual shout out to the crime lab, without <laughs> whom we'd have no material to talk about. Um, so, so presumably humans and hominins were were uh, were observing animals, and they they realize, oh, the animals are eating these things. We can eat them too. Um, but lo and behold, you can't, as I learned many, many years later, you can't just, you know, yeah, okay. with a fully domesticated red kidney bean. That's right. And with, with a brain approximately the size of a, of a small tangerine, um, you have to process these things. And so there is a, there's actual experimentation and learning. And, and yeah. what was that? What was that procedure like? Give it to Mikey. He'll eat anything. Right. right. <laughs> Until his stomach explodes. <laughs> well, I think. Did I every think community have a Mikey? Yeah. <laughs> of course. Every community. It's just, right. Yes. Every community had a Mikey. Every community had a guy that, you know, just enough with the stupid jokes. Every community <laughs> had a guy, you know, and I say that gender neutral, of course, who, you know, Never ever hunt successfully, you know, killed any animals. They were all of those. He's sort of the geek. Yeah, but I think that we knew all of this about experimentation. I mean, the broad spectrum diet, you know, we. Yeah, but it never really focused in on the whole processing issue quite as well. No, quite as as poignantly. Right, and I think there's there's a buried lead here, which which is, um, I mean, I hadn't really thought about this, but if you're going to be uh, soaking um, before you cook, you need something to soak in and not the um, fully published scientific article, but one of the uh, news news articles uh, noted that um, you might be soaking it in, in something made of leather, something made of hardened leather or something. Um, so, you know, you're in the pre-pottery well before pottery and yeah. you need to soak stuff. So that's a big deal too. And I think that's- yeah, Totally. There's I a whole series of technological- call it steps that you have to you have to take and <clears throat> okay so every community has a mikey and when he eats something bad oh we should soak this <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we really. have to do something to it now we so need what's, a new mikey. <laughs> what's the process of of experimentation like okay it's clear you know that that animals can eat this but mikey can't eat it um <laughs> how do we how do they learn that oh soaking pounding Right. Well, well I think, by accident. Yeah, I think that you're um again these a lot of these questions were already discussed, especially in the you know earliest part of the Neolithic and the end of the Epipel the Natufian period when they started finding grinding stones, and now we have grinding stones, so we know that they're processing plant remains. But I think that it's the <clears throat> pushing it back so far, we now can say that this they they are real they know their environment really, really well. And they are clearly yeah. experimenting a lot. Yeah. Right. But the only tools they have are chipped stone tools. Right. And, and that's, that's it uh, for, in terms of non-perishable mm -hmm. kinds right. of tools. But, right. But they're just, I, I mean, I don't think it's a matter of, no, I, I, I How did they start them. experimenting? I think that all of, you know, prehistory, 
up until maybe the Natufian was constant experimentation. I mean, yeah. they're constantly trying to figure things out and they're natural, you know, and I hate that word, but they're, you know, they're natural scientists. They're continually testing things and yeah. trying to figure out their environment and watching animals and watching the seasons and having familiarity with plants and all of this kind of thing. And now instead of having it be an epipaleolithic kind of set of processes, now it's a middle paleolithic set of processes. And, and we know undoubtedly that sometime we're going to start finding stuff 100,000 years ago that indicates X, Y, or Z. Right. Mm -hmm. right. Like, well, look, fire is already it's already on the books. Right. Thousand right. years ago. Right. right. I mean, but so that's yeah. Right. So we're taking that for granted in this in this context. Of course, they have fire. Otherwise, they couldn't be cooking. And, you know, I you, you collect some seeds. I don't know why you're collecting them, but then they happen to get wet in a rainstorm. You know, they're sitting in a puddle for a while and then, huh, maybe we can eat them this way. I don't know. Um or maybe well, we can't think, open them. Maybe we need to soak them to try to open them. I mean, what do they do? You know, they got 24 hours in the day, right? <laughs> and they don't have anything else. So, so this is entertainment. It's re it's research. It's, it's all they have going on right. is to well, figure stuff out. I mean, their whole yeah. life is spent figuring stuff out and trying to make just the modest number of steps to, you know, make their life more more. <laughs> either easier or more tasteful or right. I mean, yeah, yeah. all they do all day long is try to figure stuff out. I like the idea also of, you know, flavoring their food. Um, yeah. Cause we don't really think about that. We think about, you know, just getting enough calories in to survive, but right. uh, they're actually very interested in what they're eating and how it tastes. Right. Just, so what I, I was thinking like was around 40,000 BP, we begin to get all of these, you know, <clears throat> Dolne Vestinici uh, figurines, and we get cave paintings. So we have the beginning of a whole mm. uh, aesthetic world. And now we can add taste to that, right? Yes. So around 40,000 BP. It's and a culinary revolution. And certainly earlier, but certainly at 40,000 BP, from Europe across to Eurasia, we have the real beginnings of a whole, you know, aesthetic palette that's being expressed in lots of different ways and, and through lots of different media. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and then the other thing is this takes patience. Um, you know, you're, you're soaking and you're cooking and you're, and you're pounding, you're pounding. You're, right. Soak, I mean, soak, pound, char, soak, pound, char. I mean, day in, day out. Can we just go get something else to eat, Mom? Exactly. That's the right. They're, I mean, spend, they're spending their days just, you know, collecting, pounding, soaking, pounding, and charring until they until they hit on a combination that A doesn't kill one of their one of the little group's members, and B, you know, is somewhat interesting taste-wise. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, but is it so? Is this part of the the creative revolution that, or or is this um, just you know along with making figurines and cave paintings and increasingly elaborate uh, chipped stone tools, which are you know 
presumably representative of group identities or or something or regional kinds of identities or is this just a, a way to uh, make thing an unrelated trajectory to make things um not taste like crap and i don't think you can pull it apart i think it's all part of the same thing mm. yeah yeah i mean god knows what kind of you know marine animals and shells that they were eating you know without cooking and <laughs> losing <laughs> members of the tribe along the way. Right. I want to get back to Rachel's point, or your observation that, you know, they talked about in one of those um, magazine or uh, newspaper yeah. articles, they talked about um, boiling and what they could be boiling it in. I think that's another important contribution because yeah. for so long, we were sort of fixated on grinding stones being part of the Natufian, so the later part of the Epipaleolithic, Mm -hmm. um, as being a huge advancement and then pottery um, as being a huge advancement because in pottery you can detoxify and you can do all of these things and that that opened up the diet and now it's like yeah no <laughs> they actually had done workarounds um, and the interesting thing again is that is that in, in at least in Europe they're making figurines right using clay mm -hmm. but not using clay for pottery until much later, but that's because we can now sort of surmise mm -hmm. that they have this big workaround, either boiling things in leather bags or boiling things in hide uh, in pits that are lined with hides and using hot stones. And, and that's all speculative, but clearly they were, you know, soaking. Right. And, and they had lots, they were soaking lots of things in great quantities. Yeah. There are no, there are no clear permanent installations which means no clear permanent investments in in creating equipment or in particular sites beyond maybe digging pits lining them with stones and there's certainly enough you know uh, fire cracked stones i guess all over the place and and char char marks and right. and stuff but but it's cooking without pottery and it's cooking without stoneware and it's it's some sort of all natural, you know, um, in bags, in, in, yeah. uh, or, you know, in bark or, or something. Right. right. And, and it was efficient enough that they didn't feel the need to change it for a right. time. And that now gives us a whole different interpretive framework on the adoption and utilization of stone tools, which creates attachment to site and territoriality and identity all yeah. based on, you know, um, on, um, <clears throat> you know, living in one place. And so now we can look at all of those kinds of um, developments, I think in a slightly more nuanced way, because those are deliberate kinds of technological steps, which, you know, foster identity and which foster territoriality. Right, but the 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 resource base in the in the Middle Paleolithic though wasn't dramatically different than it was in the Epi Paleolithic. Yeah. There were there were cereal right. grains around. The distribution was a little different because the climate was a little different and all this. But was there was there no Middle Paleolithic guy saying, "Guys, guys, forget the bitter vetch, <laughs> try this. It's called barley, <laughs> the wheat." No, no, we don't do that stuff. That's. What are you talking about? That, that right. stuff sucks. Um, but, 
Well, I mean, hmm, that's interesting. Or maybe they, or maybe they did, but it was just uh, they were, they were really, they really leaned into the whole broad spectrum, right? But diet, but it's a, it is broad spectrum. About that, there's no right, there's no question. However, there is a real emphasis now for over whatever close to seventy thousand years on things like you know, bitter vetch and Mm -hmm. wild mustard and from 40,000, you know, different kinds of nuts. So that even though it's still a very broad spectrum, again, no debate about that, there is a pretty significant span of time in which they're relying on a few things and that we still rely on today. I mean, you know, oats. I mean, I had oatmeal yesterday, you know? Mustard greens, people, you know, we still eat mustard greens and, and all of these kinds of greens, these bitter greens are very, very popular and have been popular in the Mediterranean diet. Obviously now we now know from 40,000 BP. So it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition. Yes, there's a broad spectrum. They're experimenting and we have evidence of that with hundreds of types of, you know, different um, crops or not crops, but resources. Um, But they're also there is this demonstrative reliance on very specific um, um, uh, food sources. Right. And they're also hunting. And they're they're also hunting. (laughs) Right. So they're getting lots of protein from various sources. Um, And they're also getting lots of fiber. I mean, this is (laughs) very... It's not like they're eating a lot of rice. I mean, there's no <laughs> rice in their diet. <laughs> right, right. But <laughs> all these grains, you know, and, and yeah. just the, the thought of, you know, of of crushing the grains and into coarse coarse matter because they couldn't get it into a fine flour. Um, you know, that's that has to be able to be digested successfully. So so that's something to think about. Yeah. Also, also um related or perhaps not related, you know, there's always been, we've always known about this connection between bread and beer, you know, once you got the yeast going, you can, what's the difference between bread and beer? Well, one is a liquid and one is a solid, but here there's this, they can't tell if this stuff was actually made into a bread or if it was more of a porridge kind of a thing. And that's interesting too, that we don't really know if they're eating it in a solid form or if they're eating it in more of a liquefied form. If we had more of their teeth, <laughs> that, that would be one indication. Right. That's a good point. We we do have some of their teeth, but I just don't remember what it showed. Well, yeah, they we don't have, have their teeth. That's the main oh. thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, and and there is uh, there is evidence or a theory that uh, that brewing beer or creating using yeast to ferment a liquid with you know grain began in the Epipaleolithic. There's still a right. bit of a debate about that, but it, it's uh, that horizon is being pushed back further and further also. Um, right. And now that we have, you know, again, now that this idea has been introduced that they're, you know, boiling things in pits and, and these kinds of things, that opens that kind of debate up to, oh, good, good likelihood they are figuring this stuff out earlier. Right. Right. I will say they seem to say that it's a, that the flour that they were making wasn't fine enough and that it was more porridgey than bread. Right. And at best it was a kind of a cracker. Right, right. I think porridge, you know, that seems perfectly reasonable. But boy, those sites must have been really messy and filled with flies and 
you know. That's a good point, actually. Yeah, yeah. But I guess when you, you know, when you're bringing home an animal carcass, (laughs) (laughs) right, there's also going to be a lot of flies. So yeah, a lot of flies. Yeah. Flies Um, getting stuck in the oatmeal. Right, right. right. Oatmeal being in big pits, like. Well, and, and insects are probably some part of the broad spectrum that they're eating as well. Um, That's a good point too. But. Crickets and grasshoppers. Some of your slower moving, more easily trapped, <laughs> slower <laughs> swarmy, <laughs> swarmy well, insects. Filled with protein. You're talking to a guy who could catch flies with his hands. So, well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> you could be the chief. Of, I, yeah, really. Of our Neanderthal <laughs> grouping. Um, I'll bring up something completely unrelated, which is that. Um, so the the site the the French French the site in Greece. Frank, um, Frank. Frank. Thank you. Was excavated in the 60s, but it was only in 2017 that they wet sieved some of this material and through flotation, they found they found this stuff through flotation. And that's also interesting that you can always, if you save your material properly, boys and girls, then you can always (laughs) (laughs) you can can always uh, analyze it with different methods. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Because back back then they didn't really have these sieving methods to look at little micro samples yeah. and um, <clears throat> and nobody really had the idea of, of, you know, doing scanning electron microscopic, like looking at it with a scanning electron <laughs> microscope. That's, that's the word um, right. in order to look at these, you know, to see what the little components were and how they were mechanically broken down or whatnot. Right. Right. Um, so. I guess, and, yes, yeah, go ahead. No, no. No, I was also going to say that they are dealing with very small sample sizes. I think four from one site and five from the other. So, so there is that, but. Right. But now, you know, that there's going to be, you know, they're going to, everyone's going to be turning over the, the insides of, of museums to, to find right. more stuff that can be sampled and ongoing exactly. excavations. Right. So Shanadar's undergoing uh, more recent excavation. So there's going to be more samples from that. But, you know, this also speaks to something that we uh, talked about in a not yet released episode. Um, but but also when we talked about Gobekli, you know, mm-hmm. um, Tepe, and about, you know, whether there's a domestic site and whether, you know, what are hunter-gatherers capable of. And now it's Again, by extending the time depth of these kinds of technological developments and, you know, food processing by 20 to 40,000 years, it means that the run up to more complex kinds of things like a Gobekli Tepe are not so stunning because the ramp is much longer now. The temporal ramp is much longer. And so there's a much longer time for you know all aspects of group consciousness group consciousness to expand in you know in different and interesting ways and if you eat your bitter vetch flavored wheaties (laughs) you get a good running start of forty thousand years who knows what you can accomplish exactly well that's exactly it and that's you know again this is going to allow for a much more nuanced understanding of I think certainly the epipaleolithic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I want to know. 
I, I want to know how people figured out what tasted good, what didn't taste good. Because so many, so many flavors and fragrances and, and things are, are so culturally, so culturally specific. Very true. And is there, you know, do, or, or is this just at the level of everyone agrees that bitter vetch is, tastes horrible and bitter. So we have to do something well, to do it. It's availability, isn't it? Mm. I mean, obviously almonds and pistachios were readily available. Vetch and wild mustard was readily available. Yeah. Right? And then the it pistachios got- Pistachios taste good. <laughs> well, not those pistachios. I guess not. They're probably nasty, small little- Right. Before you you remove your tannins. Neurotoxins. Okay. Good points. Um, Which only speaks to the issue of whether, you know, murder mysteries started many, many millennia before we thought they did. (laughs) Like, watch him, watch him. He's going to, he's going to eat the, he's going to eat the. uh, Right. Right. But but what's unknowable though, is whether these kinds of things were invented over and over and over and over again by all these different groups zillions of times um, with mikey dropping dead (laughs) it's just in a groundhog day succession (laughs) all over the ancient world or or whether at some point certain kinds of information started spreading outward laterally as these groups started were they're they're in communication of some sort and they're they're visiting and somebody says don't eat that right (laughs) haven't you heard there's a much better way of processing that or haven't you heard three people drop dead on the nearby campsite last night right Um, and 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 that unfortunately that process i think is well it's certainly on invisible now or unvisible um (laughs) I, I wonder if there will ever be a way to tightly sequence enough sites so that you could trace certain kinds of learned behaviors laterally. I doubt it. Um, you know, I think like look, I'm looking at this map, and Frankthi and Shanadar, uh, you know, right next to each other on the map. Well, I mean, you know, they're not they're not so far away. We know people are moving around. You know, yeah, Anatolia. Yeah. And the Near East. So, yeah, I, mean, I was thinking the same thing looking at the map that it's not out of the question that, well, not immediately, but but some sort of right. Well, we very we, long down the line. We we know that this is sort of kind of what happened with the spread of domesticated plants and animals. Yeah. And yeah, right. there's a there's a demographic dimension to it. Farmers are actually moving, uh, in in many cases, maybe most cases. But the 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 crops, the animals and the plants are too, which means that people, and at the very least, even if there's human movement, new people are coming into contact with these things and these concepts, um, right. and these pre- procedures for for making food. And I wonder whether cooking. I mean, certainly in vastly later periods, we know that cooking spreads styles. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why I don't think it was repeated independent inventions. I really think that, you know, if something works, it it eventually gets known and, and catches on um, and go, goes viral, so to speak. <laughs> um, I don't think you have too many Mikeys. 
well, you probably have a lot of Mikeys, but, but <laughs> you know, for, for different things. For I think that these kinds of, of uh, seeds, their natural habitat zones were probably pretty big, right? Mm -hmm. Looking at this map, right? From Europe to Southwest Asia. So I think they're sort of playing around with the same stuff. And that by the time they sort of met each other in the middle or wherever, a lot of this was known at the at the macroscopic level and they were just sort of fine tuning it. But I think that maybe the maybe a step in all of this is is looking at the natural habitat zones for these crops that not crops that these uh, <laughs> that these plants, plants. Yeah. these plants uh, are found in 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 uh, in middle Paleolithic sites. Yeah, and I think that those are pretty big. But at the same time, the technologies, the the uh, the, the real technologies, the, yeah. the permanent technologies. And it's not real, but <laughs> the inst the installations, you know, stone vessels and pottery start in particular places and they seem to spread from those kinds of places. It's not everywhere all at once. Right. So there is some kind of social basis for food, for food prep. Yep. And, and that gets us back to like the ideas of someone like Covin who, you know, talked about the ideological uh, ground being stabilized mm. for technological uh, developments as opposed to the inverse. Mm -hmm. And and I think that that's a really good point, Alex, that um, if a lot of this stuff was known, then these kinds of things like the technological development of groundstone tools and its adoption are maybe, you know, obviously there's a technological component, whatever they were pounding this stuff with before. And that's another question. With we know what they were, okay, maybe they were boiling it in, in these ways that you talked about, Rachel, but what were they pounding this stuff with? Just rocks maybe, you know, and we don't have, I mean, we don't, well, I don't know why we wouldn't have that evidence. Maybe, you know, we do. I mean, I don't know these assemblages. I mean, there are. Yeah, there are. Right. So, um, but yeah, I think that I, and I, you know, we've talked about this a lot, you know, and I think that the ideological component of these decisions is probably a little greater than we've, than we think though. Again, people like Kovan have always thought that. Right. Right. It also right but he was, he was thinking in terms of a much, much later period in the Neolithic right. when humans are kind right. of conceptually, philosophically, ecumenically separating themselves from nature. Right. We're not dumb animals, Mikey. You know, you have to. We 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 eat our food. We pre we we prepare our food. We're not animal. We we don't just graze. So sit up straight. And maybe that horizon is being pushed way 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 back. Also, some kind of yeah yeah. You know, <laughs> you're not a cow. <laughs> you right. have to you have to pound and soak your food before right. you eat it. So right. you're not. Analogous to you're in a different category. You analogous to what we were saying, what what people in general are saying about Gobekli Tepe in terms of you know maybe they were gathering for some other reason, some religious reason before agriculture, and that's what led to agriculture. So the big idea coming first, and then the the processes, the the technologies following the the big idea. And I realize that's you know Neolithic, not not Epipaleolithic. Right, but again. I think that now we have an expanded set of data. And so now we can say, 
you know, we can look at these kinds of developments with food processing alongside um, cave painting and um, making figurines and, and all of these kinds of things, which are clearly ideological in in yeah. uh, conception. Um, so we have sort of a, a an easier time making that kind of an argument. What if we could just travel back in time and bring a Cuisinart with us? And <laughs> we're, change we're, we plug it in. You can't do that. You can't change history. Right. <laughs> Darn. You put a you put a butterfly into a Cuisinart. You come <laughs> back in time, and you know we're all speaking some sort of dinosaur-related language or German or something. I don't know. <laughs> and uh, we learned that from science fiction in the 1960s. <laughs> so does cooking make us uh make us human is that really the bottom line that's that's what separates us from the animals is that's cooking great. i don't know whenever i see someone chewing with their mouth open i i, I would it's say a fine no. line <laughs> it's that's not such I mean. a fine line that's and why it's, our mothers told us to close your mouth when you chew exactly it's and it's not closed. a straight line either <laughs> No, I like that question. We've suddenly gotten very philosophical. <laughs> suddenly. <laughs> this, whole, this whole podcast is about philosophy, really. We are. Um, right. Well, maybe our listener will write in and, and tell us <laughs> if he or she thinks that, uh, you know, cooking makes us human. Right. The best uh, the best comment from the listener, you know, gets some some. Coupons to the Golden Corral or something. Maybe it's not cooking. Maybe it's seasoning. Maybe it's seasoning. I like that. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, condiments really are, you know, <laughs> or it's are the most important thing on planet Earth. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that because, yeah, we don't want to forget about the whole seasoning flavor aspect, which is what this is really about. But, right. We might, we haven't really talked about that, how this is a deliberate de decision to add uh, very specific plants to an already existent plant-based diet in order to, you know, add a little bit of bitterness and astringency, which is all they really had to work with, right? They didn't yeah. have anything sweet to work with. Um, right. This is pre- No, but everything was made with love. <laughs> <laughs> that I don't know about. Uh. <laughs> that <laughs> <laughs> that might be a trying to put the well, turn, no, well they did they did have an appreciation of sweet because they also had fruit trees to gather from but the fruits were small and bitter those early strawberries were awful i'm sure <laughs> okay, right well, and, and the apples were like little crab apples i'm thinking yeah. more about i'm thinking more about dates and maybe i don't know yeah, those were also pretty small i think that they all started out as nasty little you know it, it was I mean, a small and bitter age <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it well, but that that's actually a very good point is that it's only you know we're 40,000 years ago but all the species that that we refer to as being sweet and delicious and juicy and bountiful have, have all been made that way by us pretty right. much in the last uh, 5,000 years 10,000 years at the most well, thirty thousand years eating bitter stuff will do that to you, right? What about what about sour? I mean, sour they had. Yeah, they I think sour. I think those early fruits also had a little bit of sour in them. Yeah, I would imagine. Um, so I don't know. You know, if you give me a choice between bitter and sour, I'd choose sour. 
flavor. Well, okay. Well, that's a good question, though. Is this, this does this tell us something about their about their inner lives, <laughs> or is it just that you know life gave them bitter vetch and yeah. they made the and they, they made, made the best out of it? Yeah, when life gives you bitter vetch, you know, make sweet vetch. Right. Well, I think it does tell us something about their inner lives, but I don't think we'll be able to solve what it is. Um, we should also say, I, I think that, um, well, I'll say, because I think. <laughs> I was going to say, just say it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you have to be shy. The theory that is mine, which I that have. to say. Um, that this was, that we read a bunch of uh, popular articles about this. Yes, yes. And one very, ah. very good uh, a scholarly article in antiquity, which obviously builds on lots and lots of very detailed research over decades. But uh, it's an exemplary job, both of the scientific research and publishing it, and then the researchers themselves and their institutions publicizing um, this this research in the popular press and through the institutions themselves. And that's really how it should be. That's how it should be done folks <laughs> yeah this exactly it's a great point alex and this was a model of that first the serious publication that details methods and results and uh, all of all of these very you know specific avenues of research and then the researchers themselves doing a very good job uh, uh making themselves available for interviews and their institutions publishing nice snappy short but um rich uh yeah. dense popular articles. And so the researchers themselves are able to get the word out at the popular level after having established the, um, you know, a, a rigorous scientific article. Yeah. 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 And I think that's really kind of key that, that it's put out there, uh, first of all, in scientific language and then in language the public can understand. Uh, and it has not been distorted, which is another nice thing. It has not been distorted in the popular press articles that we've read. Right. And, you know, there on that basis, this is it, it speaks to the, uh, the the quality of of the work and uh, the quality goes in before the name goes on. <laughs> <laughs> something, something like that. But, um, you know, it, it, this is this is a. Uh, technical stuff but it was made interesting for the person in the street right and it got some it got some play and uh you know i don't know how many people on the subway are talking about it but that's that's okay this is it might be one or two one or maybe one or two a big enough subway system and and it's not like um this was you know, all sorts of preliminary results were teased or, you know, half half-baked things were thrown out there like a big pot of spaghetti to see what sticks. Yeah. Right. Um, and so kudos. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. Um, okay. um okay, so any uh any um what are they called? Final, final thoughts? Yeah, final, final thoughts. thoughts. Hmm. Um, well, I'm curious to try some bitter vetch. <laughs> Start with mustard greens and, the, and, and, then, and then maybe move on to bitter vetch. I think that's probably easier to get a hold of. A too. valuable source of fiber. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, I just like this idea that the way we deal with food is one of the fundamental things that makes us human. 
Mm. We're not animals, damn it. <laughs> All right. All right. Okay. It's a wrap. It's a wrap. Hang on. Turning it off. Why can I never find the stop recording? I don't really like wraps, though. I don't like wraps either. Uh, they're, right. just, they're too bready or something. I, I like, I, I think, I like bread. Yeah. And if I'm going to have a tortilla, I want like a quesadilla or a taco or something. Yeah. Don't don't roll up some tuna fish in it and call that a sandwich. Yeah, it is right. There's two right. It's two. Yeah, I don't like it at all. A flawed idea. Yeah. I'm gonna stop recording now. <laughs> oh, the, the flat. <laughs> this is the best part. I know. I wanted to get this in. I you okay. know. Here Our I go. It's about. Well, after this episode, I am soaking and pounding everything before I eat it, like this muffin, for example. In the meantime, though, we'd like to thank Eris Dessel, Community Engagement Coordinator for the Chicago Philharmonic, for our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Dumont Television Network. Be sure to catch another episode of Trash or Treasure, Thursdays at 9. And so, to get in touch, leave us a comment. Send us an email at This Week in the Ancient Near East. It's all one word, and yes, it, it is a real email, at gmail.com. Or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.